It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me, or you, or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Sandy Rios with you. I'm still uh, on the rooftop of Fox, uh, but when I'm uh, working in D.C., I often meet fascinating people along the way. I'm here for the radio row, but in a briefing that I was in yesterday, I, I met a very interesting man who has a fascinating story, and I wanted to have him come in and talk to me. This is not about immigration. This is about uh, what's happening elsewhere in the world. Um, my guest is the Honorable Francisco Tudea. He's the former first vice president and foreign minister of Peru. And uh, he has an incredible personal past. He, he speaks several languages. We were, just, we were just speaking German together, weren't we, Francisco? Well, at least joking. <laughs> <laughs> so my German is uh, not very good. But how many languages do you speak? Well, I speak, in fact, three languages. It's Spanish, French, and English. And... Uh, uh, let's say the rudiments of other languages. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> en enough, <laughs> enough to eat in a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can relate to that. I could do that in German and yeah. French. Garçon, apportez-moi la carte, s'il vous plaît. I can do that. <laughs> yeah. That's about all. And la pelota, I could do that in Spanish. Yeah. So, but um, uh, you were the former first vice president of the country Peru, and um, you have an incredible story to tell, which is really very applicable to what's happening uh, in the United States. And I'm going to actually start this conversation with you by, uh, my audience has heard me talk about uh, the Sao Paulo Forum. And let me just stop to say that when the Soviet Union um, fell, uh, Castro and the other leaders of some of the radical South American and Central countries got together for this forum. And they sort of made a decision that they would start taking over countries in Central and South America, not by armies and force, but through the democratic process. And it's worked beautifully. Venezuela's like Exhibit A. But the case I'm going to make as we, as you start listen to, listening to Francisco tell the story Peru, is that you will hear that the same template has been used in the United States of America. So that's going to be the, the premise of this. Francisco, oh, uh, tell us about Peru. People, you know, they don't really know too much. I think of, uh, I think of the mountains of Peru. Yes. Uh, Machu Picchu. It's a paradise for, for tourists. But beyond that, it's a, it's a very rich country. It's a very big country. It's bigger than California, Texas, and Florida put together. It's one of the richest countries in the world. It has the, mo the, mo the most uh, rich mining uh, range, mining. mountain range, oh, mountain. Poly polymetallic mining uh, uh, mountain range in South America. And so with the South African RAND and the Russian Urals, it's one of the richest mountain ranges. We are a mining country. 
So what we, do you mine? What what we mine everything. Copper, gold, silver, okay. iron. But uh, we have now a far left government, Maoist government, that is uh, a, a, a government that comes from a mutation of shining path. The terrorist movement. Shining path. That's the yes. word we need to remember. That has been one of the most vicious and criminal terrorist movements in the history of mankind. They killed 25,000 Peruvians and uh, they mutated after the fall of the Soviet Union, become, became organizations for the defense of political prisoners, how they call these criminals that are in jail, and organized teachers' unions and uh, founded political parties. And one of these parties, that is in the Sao Paulo Forum with the Communist Party of Cuba, is Peru Libre, the party in government now in Peru. So they have strong links to Shining Path. And today, at this precise hour in the Peruvian Congress, the Minister of Labor, who he was a member of the military arm of Shining Path, who has a criminal record, who has police records, is being questioned by Congress. And the President of the Council of Ministers has menaced the Congress that if they censor him, so he should leave office, then they will ask for a question of conflict. Under the Peruvian Constitution, you only have two questions of confidence, and then Congress is dissolved. That's like the parliamentary, is, parliamentary like the British, where you can call, right. and like the Canadians. We have the same system. Yeah, yeah. So, today, at this moment, we are on the verge of shooting our first silver bullet against the communists, against the cabinet, because this minister cannot stay in the cabinet because he's a terrorist and that means that the survival of Congress on the long term uh, will be uh, weakened, diminished and uh, we are heading uh, with a very radical government that wants to nationalize the gas and oil fields, that wants to nationalize big mining uh, that wants to redistribute the frequency of radio stations and TV stations. That's a novelty for me. I knew that wealth could be redistributed by so <laughs> socialists and, and communists. No. But to redistribute radio and TV yeah. frequencies, that is to clamp down the freedom of the press. So in fact we are confronting a very dangerous government and Peru was an economic miracle and these people will destroy all that has been achieved during 25 years. How they were elected is, I think, the crucial yes, question. Yes, yes. So let me ask you, uh, when was this election? When were this they elected? How long have they been in power? We have two rounds, like the French, and this happened between April and June. 
Oh, so it just happened. It just so happened. So they haven't had time the, to nationalize everything yet. Well, no, but in 50 days yeah. in office, they had uh, they have advanced very quickly. They've sent the bill for the to Congress for the redistribution of the radio and TV stations. So they're doing that right up front. Right they've sent a bill to change the Constitution so Already? they can make a constituent oh. assembly to their measure. And it's a constituent assembly half elected and half designated by them. Of course, Congress will refuse to approve these bills. But then, in a, in, in, in a, in a shorter or longer uh, term of time, Congress will be dissolved. And then they will have a constituent assembly and we will have a dictatorship as a one that already exists in Venezuela or in Bolivia or in Nicaragua. But Peru is a huge country with five boundaries. So in the se center of the western coast of Latin America. So this poses a danger not only to us Peruvians, but to our neighbors. And it's uh, an, an, ex uh, 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 an example that will be used by the far left in all our, the neighboring countries uh, to promote their ideas. See, you, we have won in Peru. Why shouldn't we win in Colombia? Why shouldn't effect. we win in Chile? Why we shouldn't yeah. win There's, why, in why Brazil? Fi why fight? Why push? It's inevitable. Why fight? Why push? Well, I have to say, again, that this is, this is the template that Hugo Chavez used in Venezuela. I don't know if that's the first... Is that the first South American country where they tried this to work to win through the democratic process? They've was, done was this to Peru for 20 years. Okay. We've had left-wing governments uh, since 2011, but never, never people had voted at as this time for a radical communist government. They always were wolves in sheep's sheepskins. They they posed as nationalists. They posed yeah. as social democrats yeah. or whatever. Now they've said outspokenly, "We are Marxist-Leninists. We are Maoists. Uh, we will revindicate racial uh, supremacy of the Indian peoples." We will impose Quechua as a language. As you know, Quechua is only spoken by 17% of Peruvians. So the, 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 the main part of Peruvian population doesn't understand a word of Quechua. And they want to impose, impose a language that people can't understand yes, or speak. Yes, the, the president of the Council of Ministers, to evade answering the press about this, these things, answers the questions of the press in Quechua. So nobody, nobody can understand, nor the journalists, nor the people that are watching TV or hearing radio. So an hour after the answer, some translation is made and it appears in the media. But in fact, they have a system. They have a system of shaming people. That's how they got the votes because the competitor of Pedro Castillo, the Maoist president of Peru, was Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of Fujimori, the, the president who, who wiped out socialism from Peru and established Is a market economy. With? Is that who you served with? I served with him. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, now 
they shame the people. How are you going to vote for the neoliberal, uh, authoritarian, autocrat's daughter? So people were shamed, were mobbed, uh, and, and in a certain way, many people abstained to go to vote on both rounds. We had, in certain zones of the country, 25% abstention of the people registered to vote because they were afraid of this bullying. And uh, many people who went to vote, to vote voted for Castillo without being communists or, or vo voted null and void. And so he won by 44,000 votes. Nothing. Nothing. A minimal margin. And the uh, elections jury infiltrated since some years ago by the far left, by the Maoist far left, didn't receive the founded complaints of the political parties about a fraud that happened in many regions of Peru in which you had whole provinces in which Pedro Castillo got 100% of the votes, Keiko Fujimori, zero votes, null and void, zero, uh, white votes, zero, so nobody made a mistake, uh, nobody, everyone voted for Pedro Castillo. And you had this happening, let's say, in 30, 40 voting booths. So in a province. So it was obviously a manipulation. When a group, important group of lawyers um, decided to revise the acts of the election and impugnate those votes, the electoral jury said it doesn't proceed without examining the merits of the case. It's amazing. So it was impossible impossible to challenge the results. My guest is Francisco Tudea, who's the former first vice president of Peru, and he's describing the election process that just took place in the spring in Peru. It sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It is very it familiar. Is very, all the stolen votes, not counted, people vote, 100% of a precinct voting for one candidate. It's a it sounds like a template, and it is. And when we return, we'll talk to um, Francisco a little bit more about it and about what's uh, what he's trying to warn America about, because there's something really specific that's happening there regarding China that he's trying to give us warning on. So stay tuned. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Guest, uh, this is really a privilege, Francisco. Francisco today is the former first vice president of the country of Peru, and he's been describing uh, the communist takeover of Peru. It just happened through the democratic process in the spring. He's describing about election, a lack of election integrity, shall we say? He's been talking about how they've now the communists who have taken over are moving to control radio and television, really, right. and media, and, and uh, dissolve Congress. Dissolve Congress, take take you know, do away with the Constitution, which is what uh, Hugo Chavez did. Uh, so, uh, so, but then we have not even talked, uh, Francisco, about the influence of China, because and we many would tell. Those that are paying attention would say China was very involved in our election also. But tell us China's influence in Peru and why it should concern Americans. Well, the first thing President Maoist President Castillo did 
publicly, he met with several ambassadors, but the first thing he did with publicity was to go to the Chinese embassy and pay his respects to the Chinese ambassador. Normally, you must understand, ambassadors go to the House of Government and pay their respects to the President, but it, w it went the other way around. China has strengthened its position in Peru in the last 10 or 15 years, but began to infiltrate Peru at the end of the 1990s. Now we have 170 Chinese corporations that control copper mining, because that's the main objective of China, to have a strategic metals for, the, for their industry, uh, control iron mining, they own these concessions and uh, they sell to Peru artificial intelligence, 5G, optical fiber, etc. All the big corporations, Chinese corporations, Shugang, Three Gorges, uh, Costco, uh, Shipping and Port, etc. are in Peru. Uh, they are building a port to, in the north of Lima that is 40, has an extension of 42 hectares and uh, will have a, a, a dock, uh, a mole that will have 400 meters long, 59 meters wide and the draft of that port is 17 meters. Of course, the main use of that port is to export uh, uh, agro-exports and minerals to China. Uh, the Chinese authorities, I was at the presentation of the project, the, the Peruvian company invited me, and the Chinese authorities said that this was part of the Belt and Road Initiative, that Peru was the hub from which China would radiate to all South America. It's the first port built by China and owned by China 100% in South America. They haven't built a port in any other country. So they have built it because it's in the center of the western coast of Latin America. And the western coast is the Pacific. As you know, there is a, 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 a big U.S. effort of containment of China in the South uh, China Sea. 70% uh, of the U.S. Navy is in the North Pacific and then suddenly you have this you have this port huge port being built by the Chinese in Peru that not only can receive the post on that dock the post Panamax E3 huge container ships but also can give logistical support let's say to a People's Liberation Army Navy carrier strike force it has exactly the same capacity. They have built a tunnel, a mile long, they are building a tunnel, a mile long of reinforced concrete under the town on which the port is to reach the Pan-American Highway. You can understand, no private company would go to, to, to such expense to reach the Pan-American Highway. So to have a one mile long reinforced concrete tunnel under uh, 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 a town is something peculiar to say the least and very useful not only for the transit of the containers but also for protection. 
So what you are saying without saying is um, that America is completely vulnerable to this, kind of like our, my listeners, many of them will remember the Cuban Missile Crisis when uh, Russia was bringing in missiles to kind of establish a missile base in Cuba to strike the United States. And what you're saying is they're building this port that will provide strategic support for their aircraft carriers, this tunnel which they can uh, transport they, weapons and whatever else they want to transport. They have two objectives. Dangerous to us. To access the continent through Peru because we have... The North American continent. The South American continent. The South American continent. continent. And then the Russians that are partners of the Chinese uh, what this, their strategy is to replicate the expansion of NATO towards the, ba the boundaries of Russia. All the countries that were in the post-Soviet space, they asked to, to become members of NATO to protect, protect themselves. The R Russian reply is tit for tat. You do this on our backyard, we'll do the same on yours. So in fact the idea is to make the whole of the South American continent up to the Rio Grande, and it's happening, to change sides. I said as a joke, to slide to the dark side. <laughs> and so, uh, to isolate, isolate the U.S. So the, the, the boundary between the West, its values, its freedom, its democracy, and the rest of the world will be the Rio Grande. And below the Rio Grande, you will have all these socialist and communist governments with a very strong uh, anti-American position, because that anti-American position comes, is stimulated by Russian, Chinese, and uh, Iranian uh, propaganda and agents. So I'm guessing if they've done this in Venezuela and they've done this in Peru, they're working in other Latin American countries. They are working too. now to to win the election in Colombia next year. Between May, between November this year and May next year, you will have presidential elections in Chile, in Colombia, and in Brazil. Uh, President Duque in Colombia has a very strong socialist competitor, that is Mr. Petro. And if he wins, Colombia will balance into this side, dark side of, of politics. And, and Chile is, this year in November, they are electing the, a new president. And the left has managed to pressure Congress, and Congress uh, made a mistake, the Chilean Congress, because of weakness and allowed for uh, elections for a constituent assembly. And the constituent assembly is entirely dominated by the far left. So the constitution that will result for, from that will be catastrophic for Chile, who was a case of economic miracle. And additionally to that, nobody knows what will happen in the presidential election in November. And then you have Brazil. And there, the fiercest and toughest battle will take place against Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro is a tough guy. 
He was, the way, he was an ally of President Trump, openly an ally of President right. Trump. That's He's really right. taken a tough stand. And, and, and yeah. he is very clear about his ideas with respect to the economy, with respect to family, to respect to conservative values, etc. He will be viciously attacked in that election, not only by the Brazilian press, but by the international press, by the American mainstream media, uh, that is liberal, and 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 so he will have a very tough time. I hope he wins, but he will have a very tough time. This is fascinating, and I hope that we can stay in touch as things develop. We should yeah. stay in touch yes, because it. it's for freedom. Yeah, it's for freedom because the whole world is under attack right now. There's no question about it. Francisco Tudea, thank you so much, Francisco. Thank you. Thank you. Thank very you for much. your service to, to freedom and to our country too. Well, to Sandy, your, the service you do for freedom. It's extraordinary. We're all working together, aren't we? Yes. Yeah. All right. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Us back with you again live from uh, Radio Row. Well, okay, we are live, but this is a different day and a different event. And um, for the purposes of you listening today, I'm going to be talking to someone sitting across from me. I used to interview Brigitte Gabriel when I was in Chicago before I ever met her, and she was one of my favorite interviews, as she is most people who interview her. She is a I know this is not her claim to fame, but she is a femme fatale. She's beautiful. She uh, she was a communicator in the Middle East. I remember you were you were some sort of broadcaster overseas before you yes. came here. Yes, right? and thank you so much for all the wonderful compliments. It's going to go to my head, and yeah. next time I'm depressed, I'm calling you. Okay, well you can do that. <laughs> you can do that anytime. But the the irony, Brigitte, to me is that, that our lives would intertwine and we'd become friends. And I yes. and then so later, then we both end up on this list uh, for the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Women Against Islam. We are, right. remember the little sketches yeah, well, well, they did of our heads, uh, thinking, I guess, uh, that's fantasizing right, about that's chopping right. them off, I don't know. <laughs> that's right, yeah. oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. so, but uh, anyway, Brigitte. And we are a bundle of love, look at the two of us, <laughs> if people could just see us right yeah, now. What's the matter with them? We love everybody, we <laughs> yeah. hug everybody, yeah. we just want to play with our yeah. grandkids. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. But Brigitte, honestly, you're, you are a powerhouse. You're the founder and chairman of Act for America, which is the, probably the nation's largest grassroots uh, group that fights, ter- fights terrorism. National security, focused and, on all threats, foreign and domestic, protecting America. And you started that after 9-11, right? Correct. Yeah. I started that in 2002. Okay. Um, because as you know, you know, 9-11 affected me especially much differently than a lot of Americans because I was wounded as a child. My Initial 9-11 happened to me in Lebanon in 1975 when radical Islamists blew up my home, bringing it down, burying me under the rubble wounded. Uh, I ended up living uh, in a bomb shelter for the next seven years of my life from the age of 10 till the age of 17, robbed of my youth. Uh, I remember crawling under the bombs, digging out dandelions to eat because it was the only greenery we had to eat. I remember crawling under snipers' bullets to get some water. And every time my mother and I left our bomb shelter to get some water, we would say our last goodbyes because we did not know if we're going to come back alive or dead just to get a drink of water. So 
I understand what happens when people turn a blind eye to evil thinking, oh, it's all the way over there. It's never going to come here. This will never happen here. Well, 9-11-2001 was truly a defining moment for the United States. It changed our lives. Uh, it changed the way we travel. It changed the way we listen to the news. We watch the news. It changed our total, the way we bank, the way it changed our financial institutions. It changed everything. Yeah. Uh, for me in particular, 9-11 was a defining moment because that day my youngest daughter comes home from school. And, you know, the kids didn't know because they didn't tell them at that time what happened at school. And she said to me, Mommy, why did they do this to us? You know, because I was watching TV, watching the images of the World Trade Center come down again and again, you know, how it was replayed. And I found myself, Sandy, looking into my daughter's eyes and repeating to her the same answer my father gave me when I was a 10-year-old little girl wounded in a hospital bed. And I asked him, why did they do this to us? And he said to me, they hate us because they consider us infidels and they want to kill us. So I knew since I was a 10-year-old little girl that I am wanted dead simply because I was born into the Christian faith and lived in a Christian town. So here I had to look into my daughter's eyes and repeat the same words to her. Here we were, two generations apart. I was a young Lebanese girl. She's a young American girl. I spoke Arabic. She spoke English. 8,000 miles apart, 30 years apart, two continents apart. That day, I had to say to her the same thing. That day was my defining moment. That's the day I vowed that I will do everything I can to make sure that my daughter will never, ever have to look into her child's eyes and repeat to him or to her what my daddy said to me and what I had said to her. You know, just um, honestly, that's kind of an illustration of why uh, this whole foolish notion that started after 9-11 in the Bush administration that we could somehow remake uh, Muslim societies uh, in our own image. We could create these great democracies and, and, and make uh, faithful Americans out of Sharia adherent Muslims was a fantasy. Fantasy. Foolish. Yeah. Foolish. Uh, you, we, we were reflecting and we are still trying to reflect our Western values on evil people. Yes, exactly. And it's, it's like the left thinks, you know, when they look at Iran and they think, oh, if we just negotiate with them, they're just so wonderful. Or let's negotiate with the Taliban. If they just see how nice we are, <laughs> you know, they won't hate us as much because they hate us because they probably have the wrong idea of us. That's so misdirected because we are reflecting our values because we in the West can say, oh, why don't you sit? You don't like so-and-so. Why don't you two sit down together and get to know each other? Have a coffee with somebody you don't agree with. Maybe you learn about each other and you look at things differently. This is how we think about in the West. That's not how they view things in the Middle East. You know, I I'll tell you a story. I don't think I've ever told you this. Uh, how can I tell this without... This is inside information. So. Okay. But I'm going to tell it, but not how I got it. Uh, so uh, FBI Director Mueller, after Benghazi, um, was over in that part of the country, and someone was in a room by him alone, with him alone, and he was musing about what was happening. And the FBI director said, why do they hate us so much? Now, Brigitte, this is after 9-11. This is after, you know, years of being at war with the Middle East. This is after, and the FBI director had not figured out why they hate us. He'd not figured, that was frightening. That yeah. showed how much ignorance he had about it. And that, 
it kind of explains why we keep repeating the same mistakes. Absolutely. And, and, and here's what happened. And you and I have talked about this uh, a, a lot of times. After Bush got elected and after 9-11, Bush started the Muslim Initiative Program because he thought if we just hire and bring into our government, uh, into all our military institutions, Muslim Americans living in America, then, of course, they love America more than anything in the world, like all of us do. And they're going to work with us to prevent terrorist activities and help us win our against our enemies. And that's how we ended up with all these Muslim Brotherhood, Muslim Brotherhood informants working within our government. The Pentagon did a study in 2006. It was a six-month study trying to understand why suicide bombers blow themselves up. I detailed the study, actually, in my second book titled They Must Be Stopped. And they did the study about what drives suicide bombers, educated men and women, young men and women, to kill themselves in order to kill others in this thing they call jihad. And they found out that it was actually all driven from the Quran. It was actually detailed in the Quran and the rewards, etc., etc. The Pentagon leaders hid that study and avoided it as if it was nuclear to your health. And they shoved it. They did not want to discuss it. Actually, the guys who did it, they were asked, they were silenced not to talk about it because the Muslims that we have brought into the State Department at the time and into the Pentagon uh, basically put the kibosh on the study. And that's why the blind is leading the blind for the last 20 years, and they still underestimate our enemy. And they still do not understand the Middle East. And that's why in Afghanistan, in our withdrawal, General Austin, who was the head of our troops in Afghanistan, after 20 years, he was the head of the U.S. Uh, uh, groups. He said he was shocked, I'm telling you, shocked, as to how fast the Afghan army surrendered to the Taliban. Excuse me? You have no business being a general if this is how uninformed you are about the people and the culture of the country you are in after 20 years and you are still shocked as to how fast the, the Afghanis surrendered to the Taliban. I could have told him that. Any, any young kid could have told him right, that from exactly. the Middle East. I mean, it, it's... it's that's how it's, it's so, unconscionable. It, it's, it's how unconscionable. it works. Well, yeah. we know that... Uh, we, I, I have something I want specific I want to share with you, but... We know how they scrub the training manuals of the of Quantico for the right, FBI agents. Right. So, we by the, the way, by the way, did you know that the training manuals in Quantico, the FBI, were based on my book because they hate? No, because the I head didn't know of that. the FBI at that time was a follower of mine since 2002, and then he invited me to Quantico, and I worked with him, and they used my book for the training for all the FBI new agents to understand what's happening, and they designed the mosque that they built in Quantico. Virginia based on my book so they can do the training and everything and I worked very closely with them until 2008 when my friend disinvited me because you know uh, I was supposed to speak at the graduating ceremony in Quantico to the FBI agent and they had one Yemeni student on an exchange program between us and the Yemeni government and he did not want me to say something that would offend him because then he, the Yemeni guy, would complain to the Yemeni embassy in Washington, D.C., who would in return complain to the government, and his government would complain to our government as to what's happening at the FBI, about all this education about radical Islam, etc. And that's why I was canceled from that event. And the head of the training at the FBI in Quantico explained it to me, and he said, my hands are tied, Brigitte. I feel sick that I have to do this, but this is where we are. And, of course, the president was Barack Obama at that time. At that so, time, exactly. Right, you know, okay, so this stuff has real consequences. And as an example, uh, we know that 13 Marines were killed in, uh, at the airport 
in Afghanistan when they were trying to you know, help people get inside the gates. And now we're really, really concerned about the, uh, what our government, our leaders knew when that was taking place. Mike Gallagher, a congressman, was grilling General uh, uh, McKinney uh, in Congress this week. I want you to hear this exchange, and I'd love to know your thoughts about it. Let's listen. Do you know which Taliban forces were actually providing security in front of the airport? Yes, we do. Was it Badri 313? They were part of it. There were other elements as well. It was a hodgepodge of units. But Badri you know 313 was part Among of it. others. Among others. A, a group among that many specializes others. in suicide bombing attacks. So that's the end of the clip. So what he's saying, of course, is this, what the generals put in place to do security was partly, in part, Badri 313, who's no, they, they train people for suicide attacks. And uh, so the 13 soldiers were killed by suicide bomber. I just want to know, I don't know if you've been tracking that, Brigitte, that particular the incident. The blind leading the blind. Yeah, look, yeah. they work yeah. together. You know, we look at our enemies as, oh my God, the Taliban's and ISIS, they don't like each other. Well, you know, there's a saying in the Middle East, me and my brother against our cousin, me and my cousin are against our enemies. And that's how it goes. You know, it's tribal in the Middle East. So ISIS and the Taliban may not agree on strategy because they are competing for prestige in the Islamic street, on the radical Islamic street. Who's more important? Al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban, yeah, who's more macho? Like it's, yeah. it's, yeah, macho, yeah, mine yeah. is bigger than yours. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, I'm more influential, more yeah. bigger, more stronger. I, you know, I, I inflict more damage on the Americans. Remember, the Taliban opened up the prison gates and they let all Al-Qaeda and ISIS members out. Why? If they hate ISIS members, if they are friends with Al-Qaeda, which we all know and understand because they are intermarried to each other, because this is not just friendship between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. It's a bloodline right now. They're intermarried with each other. But let's say the Taliban really hated ISIS because they are enemies. They would have let Al-Qaeda members out and kept the ISIS prisoners in prison. But no, they let them all out because there was a lot of victory to go around for everybody. The Americans were out. They were defeated. Let's all, we can all hit them right now. We are all knocked them down. They're knocked down. Let's kick them every which way we can and everybody can take the credit and we all look good. And that's basically how they allowed the suicide bombers to enter the compound and to blow themselves up. The well, Taliban were on it. ISIS was on it. Uh, they all worked together against the Americans. Well, and this suicide bomber was out of Bangram prison. They just released him. And so this is what happened. Uh, Brigitte, um, just your thoughts about uh, the Middle East now. Because it, I, I have my own thoughts about it being called cauldron that's going to be come back and just be come back with a vengeance, but your thoughts about exactly how this is going to flesh out? Oh, it's a mess. It's a mess. Our allies do not trust us. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Dubai, all these people we were working with, you know, Arab Emirates, you know, all these people, they don't trust us. Israel doesn't trust us. So they are looking at who am I going to be able to count on? I can always count on Russia. Talk about a great ally. Look how the Russians stood with uh, Bashar Assad. Assad yeah, is still true. in Syria. That's when was the last time you heard anything about Bashar Assad? It's been a long time. The Russians are the ones you want to have as friends, not the Americans. Because the Americans will throw you under the bus. The Russians will die defending you. So it doesn't matter how much your people rise against you. It doesn't matter how ISIS wants to kill you. It doesn't matter how much Al-Qaeda wants to blow you up. How, no matter how much Hezbollah fights against you. If you are friends with Russia, Russia will keep you propped up. We have not heard the blip from Syria. A blip. No, true. Bashar Assad is still in power. He's still gassing his own people. Nobody in the world gives a flying kite. And Russia is his friend. So if you're looking around, what type of friend do you want? If, if this was me, 
I want Russia to yeah. be my friend, not the United States. I want a friend I can count on. So this is exactly how they're thinking about in the Middle East. And when you look at Russia and China trying to establish their prestige worldwide, because right now there is a vacuum. America is no longer the leader. America is no longer the, the respected nation on, on earth. Now it's Russia and China uh, who are vowing for that position. So who's going to get it? So they are both trying to win influence right now in the Middle East. And um, Russia has a heads up, of course, because Russia already has worked with different countries uh, in the Middle East in the beginning because they were competing with America for prestige in that part of the world before China became a, 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 any type of player. You know, right, China right. is just new. It's, right. the, exactly. it's the nouveau the reach the in the last 20 years. <laughs> you know, true. it's the new kid on the block. <laughs> Um, 20 years ago, China was not nothing. You know, we used to talk about starving kids in China. That's right, exactly. Now we you're pay for their dinner. That's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, okay, so the Abrahamic Accords uh, explain this is a, uh, an arrangement that Trump and his son forged uh, partnerships in the Middle East with countries that were Middle Eastern but were more sympathetic to Israel and didn't want to destroy Israel. Will they have a lasting effect? How do you see it playing a role in this? Well, you know, with the Abraham Accord, Trump promised them a lot of things. You know, that's how they entered the Abraham Accord. Trump was a brilliant business dealer. Uh, I mean, he knew how to make deals. Uh, right now, they are looking at, can I even count on America approving this for me? I mean, look at the big uh, brouhaha that happened in Congress approving the funding for the Iron that's Dome right. in Israel. Yeah, that's right. So can they count on America? They know they can count on Russia to protect them. Remember, it's all about protection of turfs. It's all tribes trying to protect their prestige. Uh, so who's going to protect them? more, America or Russia. Russia obviously protected Bashar Assad. So if you are a royal family or a country identified by one man, which the Arab United Arab Emirates is, you know, Dubai, Qatar, uh, you've got Saudi Arabia, the royal family, they're all royal families. So if you are a one man big shot and you have this whole country worshiping at your feet for, for decades and decades, who do you want to align with? Do you want to align with somebody that protects your fiefdom or you want to align with somebody that promised you something but they are already known to throw their friends under the bus? If I was them, my alignment is going to be with Russia. And that's what they're looking at right now. Brigitte, what's happened with your home country, Lebanon? Lebanon today went from being Paris of the Middle East in the 60s to today, people are killing the, each other at the grocery stores trying to buy a gallon of milk for their children. There's no bread. There's no milk. If you know how to bake bread, if you can get your hands on flour and you know how to bake bread at your home, you're trying to do that. There is ration. The country is in total collapse. We are Venezuela right now. Or we, I mean we. This is my country of birth. Obviously, America is, is my country. And this is why I fight so hard for America, Sandy. This is why I launched Act for America. And I named my organization Act for America. Not think about America, not hope for America, not pray for America, but Act for America. Because we should hope and pray and wish for America. But without acting, nothing happens. I encourage people to go to our website, actforamerica.org. Sign our petition right now. Stop the invasion. It's it's been signed by almost 2 million people. Wow. And I think it was like this morning, 1.78 million signed that petition to stop the invasion. While you're at it, sign up to get our emails and action alerts. We, don't, we notify you about bills coming down for a vote. Check our action center. Start a group in your community. If, the, if there is a group, join it. If there's no group in your community, start one. We have over 800 groups nationwide. We need you involved. We need you engaged. Uh, the time for education is over. We're not lacking 
lacking education, we are lacking what to do with the education. And that's what Act for America teaches you. What you can do to make a difference for the country. Not just be informed, but what you can do with the information that you have. Yeah, and Brigitte means what she says, and she does what she's saying. So uh, the alerts and all the things that she does are very, very thought out. They're very uh, salient, and they ha they're very effective. So, Brigitte, you started Act for America after 9-11, and there were a lot of attacks here. You know, even beheadings. I remember a woman beheaded in Oklahoma and a factory. Remember that? Yep. Uh, you know, and so I expect we're going to see that again, don't you? Uh, we're going to see some of that, but my biggest concern about the refugees coming into the country right now is they don't need to do suicide bombing. That actually makes them look bad. The danger right now is far greater than just suicide bombing, and here's what I mean by that. Look at the Somalis we imported from Somalia. They came here, they created their own little Mogadishu in Minnesota and elected their own representative into government. Nobody can even touch her district, Ilhan Omar. So we have Ilhan Omar in Congress. You have Rashida Tlaib from Detroit. You know, they're born, is their Bornistan. So they don't need to fire a bullet. Right now they are working inside the halls of Congress as elected officials. So with all the Afghanis we are bringing into the United States. And by the way, remember, Ilhan Omar came as a refugee. Yeah. So all the She's Afghanis, very grateful. She's very uh, grateful, exactly. by the way. So we have all these Afghanis we are bringing in. Within five years, where are they going to be? Where, where are they going to make little Kabul in the United States? They're going to be able to elect their own members into the government. And what's going to happen 10 years from now when we have 10 Ilhan Omars in Congress? Look at the damage we're seeing right now with just... Two of them, you know, the squad, yes, you know. It's true. So just imagine when we have 10. Suicide bombing is nothing. A guy blowing up himself, killing three people and injuring 13 is going to be the least of our worries. Right now, we are concerned about these people becoming elected members of Congress, getting other people to stand with them and start impacting our foreign policy, our national policy. Who would have thought we're going to end up with such a debate about supporting the Iron Dome for Israel? And it's because I know, of so quickly. No, I know. And then so quickly. I mean, it, I, it doesn't make any sense that's that right. that small group would have that effect on their caucus. They're, they they're kind do. of ruling the roost. They what is the dynamic there? Are. What do you think the dynamic uh, you, is there? You know, Sandy, this is a great question. I always say 2% of the passionate will always overrule the 98% indifferent. Yeah. I'm going to repeat that because I want you all to remember my statement. 2% of the passionate will always overrule the 98% indifferent. They are passionate. We need to match their passion. Okay. All the rest of the funny duddies do not matter. That's why the squad is ruling the roost. All right, but we got some passion on our side, too, and I think you're, you're the cheerleader for it, Brigitte. Honestly, Thank you just, you. <laughs> it's great. Always great to talk. I'm really proud of you as, a, as your you friend. So I am really proud Thank of you. you. Brigitte Gabrielle, it's Act for America, and she, she means it, and I suggest it, too, that you join Act for America and become part of the effort to save this country. This is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.